Go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. If you're familiar with where Ruth is, it's the eighth book in the Bible. It's relatively small compared to the first seven. We have the, the Pentateuch, the Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then we have Joshua, Judges, and then you'll find tucked right behind Judges, the small book of Ruth. It's only a, a few chapters, four chapters total, uh, and, and relatively small, uh, but offers us an incredible glimpse of God's work in the lives of his people uh, and the line of, of Christ Jesus. William Cowper, a few weeks ago you remember that I mentioned him, William Cowper wrote a, a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And a line in that hymn goes something like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Let me read that again. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, hides a smiling face. I was thinking about that week, that this week, and I was thinking about a question that just came up into my mind as I was listening to that hymn. It was, what is a feeble sense that I'm trusting in to give me a clear picture of what's going on in my life? What is a feeble sense or a, a, a sense that's only so limited by our human capacity that I'm trusting in to give me a clear picture of what's going on in my life? Is it my sight? Is it what I can see with my eyes? Is it my ears? Is it what I can hear with? There's five senses you can take your pick. I don't know who's trusting taste. It's kind of a funny visual. Uh, but it may be something internal, though, also. Maybe it's a feeling that you have. Maybe you're trusting this feeble sense to understand and to give you a clear picture of what's going on in your life. Or maybe we can ask the question this way. What's happening in your life that you're convinced you understand but simply is unknowable by your finite mind? A death in the family, or, or maybe deaths, multiple deaths. Uncertainty about how you're going to pay a bill. The future of your kids. Your own health. Maybe it's the assumption of permanence in a temporary situation. When we turn to the book of Ruth, we see something very interesting. It's about loss and redemption. We're going to take a few weeks here in this book together. But it's a brick in the wall of God's plan to bring his people back to himself. Ruth is a brick in the wall of God's plan to bring his people back to himself. And God's work is often imperceptible by us. The way that we perceive our world around us and the way that we think about the things and the interactions that we have oftentimes don't give us a clear picture, a full picture. When I say oftentimes, I mean always. God's work is often imperceptible by us. And we're going to just take the first five verses this morning in the book of Ruth, and we're going to think about these. We're going to think about this woman, Naomi. This is the mother-in-law of Ruth who experienced loss after loss. And there's great danger for us as those who regularly experience loss in our life. And that danger is, is doubting that God is at work just because we can't see his purposes in our difficulties or in our trials or in our suffering. 
that somehow our pain is pointless or this cruelty brought on by ourselves or by the universe or by others or by Satan. And while those things can operate and do operate under the curse of sin that plagues us, God will not allow an ounce of our pain. God will not allow an ounce of our pain to be wasted, but used to grow us and establish us in Him further. If you think that your suffering needs to be shed before God can work in your life, then you're, you have misunderstood how God chooses to work for you and in you. So before we go to this text, I want to marvel for a moment at what God does in inspiring the book of Ruth. Okay, so we have the law, we have these five books that are, that are they've got some history, but they're, they're relatively dry, and there's a lot of things telling God's people, like, what should you be doing? What, what should you be? How should you be conducting yourself? What are the things that you should aspire to? And then, and then we have these, these books about conquest and Joshua and the taking of the promised land. And then we have this crazy book of Judges where we see all of these different ideas sort of like flowing through and, and there's no clear ruler. The judges are ruling, but there's a lot of unrighteousness and people are far from God. And when we get to the end of the book of Judges, if you just look, if your Bible is right there, it says in verse uh, 25 of chapter 21, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own mind. That is, a, that is a tough place for a people to be. No distinct ruler. Everybody doing what is right in his own eyes. And so when we get to the book of Ruth, we have sort of all this, this lumped up, all this pent up uh, unrighteousness that the people of God are engaging in. And then we have this small picture of faithfulness in the book of Ruth. And so I want to marvel at what God does here in inspiring this book to come eight in our, in our Bibles. And God is weaving together this beautiful tapestry. And for our world that is inundated with all this self-help books and people grabbing for attention and personal glory on social media and all while trying to achieve their best life now, our world is such a, we're so inundated with this understanding, this immediacy of me. And what can I get out of everything that's going on around me? How does this shape me? How is this about me? This book cuts clearly across the grain. Seemingly simple interactions in the book of Ruth. Simple human interactions in the book of Ruth, that happened over 3,000 years ago, these turn into a brick in the wall of God's redemptive plan for his people. The Bible is an incredible book, friends. It is an incredible book. 3,000 years ago, this is what takes place, and it leads directly to the salvation, the redemption, the restoration of God's people. I said this when we were in the book of Philemon because that was so intimate too and that was like this intimate interaction between a master and a slave and a, an apostle and this personal letter that's written. I said this also, but this book is, is really incredible because it gives us so many like elevated understandings about who God is. From like 30,000 feet, we get up in the air and we see this amazing picture of who God is and these 
theological and doctrinal truths that are just are just laden in the pages of, of Scripture. And it is an incredible reality. And it should cause us to call out to God like Paul does in Romans 11, 33 through 36, and say, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer is no one. It's a rhetorical question. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? How many of us are, are guilty of that? Thinking that I can give something to the God of the universe. And that I could be repaid for it. No, he created all things. All things belong to him. He holds all things in his hands. He is the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. And maybe we can begin to get our minds around that. But think about it as a person in an ancient, ancient world. A cattle on a thousand hills. Can you think of anything more, a bigger, a more immense thing than a cattle on a thousand hills? Or who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid for in him, for from him, and through him, and to him are, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And Paul calls this out because he sees so clearly the beauty of God demonstrated to his people in Jesus Christ. And he speaks this. He writes it. He calls out. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. This is the God that we are privileged to know. Actually, like, we come to our Bibles and we look at it and we're like, oh, this is such a task. This is the God that we are privileged to know. He has communicated so much truth about who He is. He created us and He sustains us. Every... Mm, can't even think of the words. Every... Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so go to God's Word. We've got to allow this to like wash over us. We've got to allow this to bask. Allow ourselves to bask in this. In the wisdom, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. We've got to go to this and allow it to shed light on our weary souls. Did we have the 30,000 foot level and Paul crying out what he called when he writes in Romans 11, 33 through 36, and we have all of this thing, but then there's also so much care for our soul when we're downcast and when we're beaten down by the world, down in the weeds of life, not only at 30,000 feet, but down in the weeds of life. And that's where we find this book. God inspired texts like these for us to connect with these people. <coughs> Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. God inspired these texts for us to connect with these people, to understand and to relate with the difficulties that they have. And even though it all takes place 3,000 years ago, Life brings difficulties that only can be soothed with the balm of God Himself. 
Naomi was a woman, as we're going to see this morning, Naomi is a woman who suffered brokenness and loss from no food in a great famine to moving away from her home and having to assimilate into a foreign land to living in a land, or to, to the loss of her husband, to the loss of her sons, and then trying to go back and reassimilate with people who had not, she had not seen or had not seen her in over a decade. And what are God's purposes for these trials? Here's the question, like, how could, we, how could God possibly care about this small little thing that I'm going through? This book shows us that he does. That he does care. He does, and he cares more than we possibly could know. So let's look at this text this morning. I'm just going to read the first five verses. I'm just going to read the whole chapter, but you can tell my voice is not where it's supposed to be this morning. So we're, going to, we're just going to read the first five verses in Ruth chapter 1. We're going to take a look at two ideas contained here. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two, uh, these two, these two took Moabite wives, the names of which were Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Chilion died, so that the woman, well, the woman was left with without her two sons and her husband. Two ideas, two things to think through this morning as we look at this text. One, one through five. The first is this: that sojourning isn't living. I'm going to flesh that out for us in a couple minutes. Sojourning isn't living. And the second idea this morning is experiencing loss does not mean that God is not at work. Experiencing loss does not mean that God, or does, does not mean that God is not at work. So we'll take those in turn this morning. The first idea here is that sojourning isn't living. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 1. This is the big setting of what's happening in this text. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So this idea of sojourning, this is a temporary solution to a problem, right? Sojourning means that he's going to take his family, he's going to go, temporary solution for the famine, he's going to take his family into Moab, and they're going to they're gonna live there and hopefully be able to eat. So again, we see, or we, we see, or we saw, or we just said, in Judges 21, 25, right, the, the author there writes, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the judges are ruling, famine happening, uh, Elimelech picks up his family and moves to Moab. Things are not going well for, for Israel at this time. And at top of this, right, the, the, the top of the list of the things that are not going right, there's just nothing to eat. So he takes his family, his wife Naomi, his two sons, he heads to Moab. Now this is a problem because Moab is a pagan place. Moab is a place where the one true God is not worshipped. 
Um, rather, there's a, there's a whole host of gods that they, they worship there. If we go back to Judges, all the way back to chapter 10, verse 6, uh, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals of the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And well, that will make sense uh, because it says at the top of the Ten Commandments, right? The first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, God tells his people, you shall have no other gods before me. So this is a problem. He's going, he's taking his family into a land where the one true God isn't worshipped. And he's taking them kind of just as the enemy territory. They're not going to be filled or see, they're going to observe a handful of situations and people who are doing things that are opposed to what their God commands them. And the reality is we don't really have a great understanding outside of sort of the famine of why Elimelech, like what's his decision-making process here? Well, one, my family's got to eat. Uh, but two, there's probably some more underlying motivations. We see in verse one that he went to sojourn, which again applies this temporary solution to their problem. But then over the course of time, it appears that it becomes more permanent. At the end of verse 2, Scripture says that they remained there. Then a little like dies, and his sons marry Moabite women. And then at the end of verse 4, it says they lived there for about 10 years, which implies permanence. So we kind of have this progression that happens. We have a sojourn, a temporary solution. Then we have a remaining there. And then we have a living there. And all of a sudden, they've been assimilated or into, find themselves in this place. So Lilith was faced with this tough prospect, right? His family could potentially starve because of the famine. So he moved them to a pagan land, and intent being temporary. And I mean, this was allowed for in a biblical sense. When there was a national crisis, such as a famine or, or a war, they were allowed to, the people of God were allowed to sojourn into another place to to live for the time being. But moving into a territory where the language increasingly becomes permanent for a little like. It seemed to solidify further when time passed away and his sons took Moabite wives. In a very real sense, a like did not trust the Lord. A like did not trust the Lord, but rather he's his new living situation to provide for the needs of himself and his family. And he increasingly judged the Lord by feeble sense rather than trusting him for his grace. And this has some very real implications for us. This has some very real implications for us in our world in James, South North Dakota in 2018. A little like this family recognized that they needed to eat to live, so they pick up their sojourn, they dwell temporarily in the land of Moab. In the same way, we as those who are in Christ and as new creatures are living in a place that's not our home. We're living in a place that's temporary. We have a temporary home here. So the question for us, coming out of this text and seeing a little less actions, the question for us is how comfortable will we get in this world? How comfortable will we get with this world? Let's see that a little like got pretty comfortable with his surroundings, what his family did over time, from sojourn to remain, to live, from 
temporary solution that I see us here for a while to let's settle down. And it could be that it was only because of his death that it sent Naomi back to her homeland. She was out of her family and knew that her people would receive her and care for a childless widow than the Moabites would. So again, how comfortable will we get with this world? Will we, re- re- will we recognize that we're sojourners here, that this world is a temporary home for us, or will we remain separate from the world? Will we be marked by self-forgetful love for others around us, or will we look like the rest of the world and be consumed with self? Will we be willing to speak the gospel in the midst of advers- adversity or persecution, or will we just live and let live? Will we trust God to provide for us what we lack? Or we will be in our strength, compromise in faithlessness? Buffalo City Church, we need to stay on our toes when it comes to this. We need to be continually reminded that this earth is not our home. So if you're thinking about like being a basketball player, you're like playing defense. What do you do when you play defense? You get low to the ground because you want to be moved laterally, right and left. And not get burned, right? If you stand straight up, you're going to get burned. You're going to, the guy's going to run right out, or he's going to put you on a poster. You know what I'm saying? You know, nobody knows what that means. I mean, it's like what happens is you get dunked on, and then someone takes that picture, and then they put it on a poster, and then every 12 year old in the country has it on their wall and thinking to themselves, boy, I really want to get, what am I going to put someone on a poster like that? No, no one? Okay, cool. <laughs> Wow. It's like, I have like all these posters of Jordan like dunking on people. And he's like, you want to be the poor fool that's getting dunked on. You want to be the one who's doing the dunking. The, the fact of the matter is, to continue that metaphor which landed so poorly, <laughs> is that for us, the, the world is throwing some pretty good ball handlers at us, and if we're standing up straight, we don't get low and play defense and shuffle our feet and whatever it is that basketball coaches tell you to do. If you're not doing those things, we're about to get posterized. And I mean, again, these ball handlers, they come, and they look good. They do. They look good. I'm talking about health and wealth. I'm talking about a nicer boat, a nicer car, a better education for your kids. These things make it seem that like getting a little bit comfortable in this world and being okay with accumulating stuff for self, that's, gonna, that's just fine. I'm okay with that. I'm be fine with that. But those things can distract us and oftentimes do distract us, friends. They oftentimes do distract us from the fact that we are sojourners in this world. And this is not our home. It can easily take us from, this is a temporary dwelling place, to let's spend some more time here. So this seems like a great place to settle down. But those who are in Christ should be saying with regularity, this is not my home. Therefore, I'll be faithful with what I have and where I am. Something better is coming for me. I won't pursue fleeting comfort that breaks down over time. I will pursue wealth that I can't take with me. I will use that which I've been given for gospel purposes. I will run with gospel direction. 
In Christ, we are sojourners. Peter says this to his readers, 1 Peter 2.11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh are just like the most heinous things that you can think of. The passions of the flesh are submitting yourself to anything other than the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. That's what he means by passions of the flesh. Sojourners recognize that the current situation is not the end-all, be-all. But real wealth is coming in the next life. A body that does not break down. An eternity spent learning about who God is. All of this comes later. So don't give in to the pressures of the world. It all looks good, tastes good, offers satisfaction. Sojourn here. Don't live here. That brings us to our second point. What do we see in the life of Naomi? We kind of draw that from Elimelech and this increased permanence language that's used in these first five verses. Then we move to, to Naomi. Someone who's experienced that dramatic loss, and we name some of those things out of the gate, from certainty about where her food was coming to moving from home to losing her husband to losing her sons. John Piper says this about the book of Ruth. He says, The book of Ruth reveals the hidden hand of God and the bitter experiences of his people. Now Naomi becomes one of the primary characters in this book. An important element flows through her because we see right out of the gate that Naomi is emptied of everything. Naomi is emptied of everything. And it is a place of emptiness that typically is where God chooses to work. There's a great paradox here. God's fullness comes to those who find themselves empty. So we must be willing to be stripped of that which we rely on in order to establish, to be established in our faith. We tend to believe that being stripped, we tend to do this, friends. Being stripped of what we have is the absence of God's work. When we think of blessing, we think of God giving us material things or good fortune. God does want to bless you, friends. God does want you to bless you. But the first and foremost thing that God wants to bless you with is more of himself. So friends, if you're a true child of God, the way that you can be sure of that happening is the removing of obstacles to God blessing you with more of himself. If your blessing comes in the form of material, praise God. You don't see that as an obstacle to knowing God. But if God strips you of material, you are no less blessed, friends. You are no less blessed if God strips you of material. God, in His infinite wisdom, has just deemed that material is distracting you from seeing Him as the source of all that you have. And so we see Naomi's loss. We need to think about that in our own thought process. We're going to discover that even in this story, 3,000 years old, this has incredible lasting impact in redemptive history. Ruth, the daughter-in-law, she becomes 
Naomi's daughter-in-law, verse 4, we see that. The daughter-in-law of Naomi becomes the great-grandmother of David, who is Israel's greatest king. And from that line, from that family tree, God sees how fit to use this, at this point, Ruth, this childless widow daughter-in-law of Naomi to bring about the fullness of deity in Jesus Christ. Directly through this family tree we learn in Matthew chapter 1. God brings about the fullness of deity in Jesus Christ. And when we experience loss or frustration or hardship, what does that indicate to us? So we have to ask ourselves, what does that indicate to us? Do we use our feeble senses to perceive and to make judgments about God's intents? Or do we stop when we perceive a frowning providence in a difficult reality? Or do we fight to trust that behind it all is a smiling face, the smiling face of God? When loved ones get cancer, or when you lose your job, when bills pile up, when you're plunged into depression or despair, do you fight to trust that behind it all is the smiling face of God? Do you fight to trust that God will not waste your difficulty, your frustration, or your loss? I'm going to try and say this most clearly right now. When Naomi wept at the death of her husband, when Naomi wept at the death of her sons, when Naomi wept because she had no idea where anything in her life was going to come from because she was a widow in an ancient society, widows got cast aside. Could she have possibly known that God would use that to bring about his redemptive purposes in Christ Jesus? Could she have possibly known that? Not in that detail. But the frowning providence, her difficult reality was hiding the smiling face of God. God was going to use this dramatic loss. Don't hear me downplay the loss. God was going to use this dramatic loss to bring about an incredible work. He was prepared to take her seemingly inconsequential story 3,000 years ago, the seemingly inconsequential story. He was about to take it, and he was about to bring about the climax of his own story through it 1,000 years later. And friends, maybe you think that God has abandoned you as you work through loss or hardship or difficulty or frustration. Friends, this text tells you that nothing could be farther from the truth. But you must fight. Friends, you must fight to see the smiling face. This means you must rehearse God's promises. This means you know you must know God's word. Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Isaiah 41:10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Have you trusted Jesus to deal with your problem of sin? Jesus has called you his friend. Frowning providence is not the end of the line for a friend of Jesus. 
It is, in fact, a smiling face. But as we see in Naomi, it's not just things will get better attitude that gets us through this loss. It's not just that things will get better. That tends to be our... Someone comes to us and explains to us that they're experiencing some loss in their life. Oftentimes, well, things will get better. Things will look up. That's not the attitude that comes here. But it is that God will fulfill all His purposes for me. Believe that will. And I'm not talking about God will fulfill all my purposes for me. Because I certainly know what I would like for God to fulfill on my behalf. I'm talking about God will fulfill all His purposes for me. We're talking about making me a successful business owner, or giving me kids with get straight A's, or really see that investment portfolio take off. I'm talking about God will fulfill all His purposes for me. And it might not come in any of those perceivable things. It might come through dramatic loss like Naomi. And Naomi had no way of knowing how things would pan out a thousand years later. But God did fulfill His promise through her. God will fulfill His purposes through you also. But you have to be willing to wait for the results. And be okay with not seeing ultimate results in our life. What then should we do? Wherever you find yourself this morning, be faithful. Wherever you find yourself this morning, be faithful. Honor God with your work. Honor God with your life. Learn to love Him more through His Word. And then trust that there's a smiling face. God has promised it to you. You might only see the frowning providence, but trust Him for His grace. And trust that God will not waste your suffering or your loss. God won't waste it. So we're just going to give you a couple thoughts in conclusion this morning. Kind of bouncing off those two ideas, the first, the first thing is this. I'm going to speak to men directly this morning. Men, consider your faithfulness in leading your family. If you're single, consider your faithfulness in leading your future family or whatever sphere you find yourself in where people look to you. A little like moved his family to a foreign land when hardship happened. In the same way, maybe, maybe you've become a little too comfortable leading your family in the here and now. Neglecting the reality that this, this, is, all, this is all temporary. When I was in college, the pastor of the church that I interned at, we were having a conversation with a man who had decided to take a job a couple hundred miles away. Um, and this man was convinced that it was, it was God's best for him. Um, and so my pastor just asked him a couple of questions. He asked him, and at the end, he asked him if he considered st staying to remain close to the church family that he'd been part of for over a decade. And, and the man replied that he had, he had not considered that, because how could it not be God's best for him to get the salary increase and to live more comfortably in his life? Allow for his family to live more comfortably also. I don't know, that, that interaction shook me up. What, what, was the, what is the grid that I'm making decisions of? How, how am I? In that 
moment that man was saying, he was saying, no, no, I, I want to get, I want my family, and I want to be more comfortable with this temporary situation. It really shook me up. So, so men, we have to recognize that we're sojourning. This is a temporary living situation for us and our wives and our children. And how is that truth being reflected in the way that you're leading men? I want you to answer that question this week. How is the truth that we're sojourners in this world being reflected in the way that we're leading in our homes? Are we anchored in God's word? Are we willing to work a little longer each day at the expense of our family? No. Or their spiritual state? Are we considering faithfulness before financial or career success? Are we taking spiritual responsibility for our family? Are we leaving that to our wife or someone else altogether? I'm concerned that it's the latter for many of us. Please, man, I'm appealing to you this morning. Take, take spiritual responsibility for your family. Anchor yourself in God's word. Initiate times of prayer with your wife and kids. Meet with other men to be sharpened in discipleship. Be the primary motivator for your family to be involved in the local church. But your, your family is in Moab. This world, just like Moab, was throwing, throwing all of these different ideas about gods and God and all of these different pagan worship rituals and practices at the family of Elimelech. The world is throwing your family all of these curveballs. If you don't see that, then we can't wake up. We've got to take spiritual responsibility for our family. Our families are in Moab. We're sojourning here. This is not our home. This is temporary. Lead your family like you're a citizen of another kingdom. Second thing here in conclusion, as you prepare to count, or excuse me, are you prepared to count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord? These are the words of Paul in Philippians 3, verse 8, where he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul says that he counts everything as lost. He counts everything as lost. But then the second half of the verse, he says that he has even suffered the loss of all things. And so the question here is, what is your treasure? What is your treasure? Is it here in this land that you're sojourning in? This temporary place? Or is it in heaven, your permanent home? When you experience the loss of something, when you experience this loss of something that you've already counted as loss, what difference does it make? What? What? I've already counted this thing lost and it's taken from me. What difference does it make? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When you experience the loss of something that you've counted loss, you will not, you will not lose sight of the smiling face of God. Friends, our senses are feeble. Our senses are feeble. Again, that, that hymn. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. 
behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And friends, when you experience loss in this life, remember that this is not your home. This is not your home. Jesus experienced the loss that came as a result of your sin, so you don't have to. Jesus experienced the loss that came as a result of your sin, so that you don't have to. He was crucified as a substitute, and therefore nothing, friends, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.